0: Hello and welcome to the Not a Cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Bernard Fish.
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin.
0: And welcome to the 126th episode of the Not a Cast titled House of Leaves Part One An Analysis of a Clash of Kings to Narrows Four, in which Danny gets way, way too high. Stay in school, kids. Do not do drugs. They're so bad for you. Don't ever do drugs ever once in your life or I'll call the police. Also, stay out of Karth or I'll call the police if you show up there.
1: I agree with some of that. (laughs) That's all I'll say. (laughs) But yes, as Jeff said, this is another uh, multi-part episode. Forgive us. This is the House of the Undying. We cannot uh, but go deep as George does. So we're going to be doing this in we hope three parts. This first part is going to cover basically everything before Danny sets foot inside the house itself. So our thoughts about the chapter as a whole, the introduction to the house we get, Danny learning about the rules and then being uh, fed the shade of the evening. Next week we're going to be covering the first set of visions she gets while wandering the halls and And uh, seeing all the doors open to her, and then in the third and final part, we'll be covering her actual meeting with the Undying themselves and the visions they show her before they uh, attack, and we get the big fiery climax there. So I love love every single part of this chapter, so it's going to be a delight even more than usual going through them with you, sir, and with everyone else listening.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm very excited about doing these uh, these three parts on Clash Kings and Eris Four. Very excited for it. It's going to be awesome. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our not a small council. Our hand of the king, Wolfman Zach. Grand Maester Timbob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, master of ships and war of the waves. Captain of the war galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian steel, Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J. master whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, master of laws. Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, Harold, the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, the high bearded priest, Lord Jake assisted. to the hand of the king, Lady Xena of Valyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen, the Setfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the fort and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer, Alex, Rainbow Commander of the D's and Gentle Dems, A-A-Bron Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of h Town. Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Fart, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender of Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Faced Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal, Harrison, absent, shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, the Knight who is guided by voices, Lord Nick. Thucydides, lord of plagues sir jack lord of sir arthur dane and prince Rhaegar targaryen's and prince Rhaegar targaryen's sad prophecy boys club lord Jean the splendid master of coin warren of tampa bay lady anna the lovely castellan pat ironwood the blood royal and guardian of the boneway lord charles tyrell of Highgarden, lord paramount of the bandar defender of the marches high marshal of the reach war of the south and the heir of house tyrell Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorce, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, and our newest, one of our oldest returning small council members, everyone give a warm welcome back to Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance. Thank you to all of our counselors and welcome back to Hedrigal.
1: Thank you to all our counselors as always and especially welcome back to Hedrigal, we love having you with us.
0: Absolutely. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is, the five novels, three Doug histories, interviews, the Winslet Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything.
1: Our question this week comes from Red Relu himself, a High Lord, who asks, Epithets are a common way George likes to give a little extra flair to his characters. The sea snake, the young dragon, the young wolf... In season 6 of the TV show, Wyman Manderley calls Jon Snow the White Wolf one time. And then no one mentions it again. I always thought this might be from George himself, as we see bastards sometimes reversing the colors on their noble parents' banner. Jon might reverse the stark gray direwolf on a white field to a white direwolf as an homage to his favorite good boy. Also a black dragon parallel, maybe? Who knows? The White Wolf would be a great epithet for Jon if he comes back from the dead more wolfish, as some have put it. My question is, how would Jon's new wolfishness affect his story going forward? I imagine he would become more decisive and ruthless, and maybe this change would affect how he views Daenerys. Would it make him even more likely to be attracted to her? Maybe he would more aggressively pursue taking Winterfell for himself after learning of Robb's will? Any thoughts? And what do you think about that, Jeff? What's going to be the wolfish quality to Jon Snow after he emerges from Ghost's body?
0: Well, first off, I really, really like the title that was given to John in season six by Wyman Manderly, the White Wolf. I think that is an excellent title because it speaks both to Ghost, of course, being John's direwolf, as well as to, to John's identity as being the one kind of left aside in the albino direwolf, wolf, um, the one who's always kind of cast out. So I really, really like that. And I think I like it, too, because it, again, speaks to that wolfish quality, which John will likely have after he comes back from the dead uh in the wince winter and this is something that was talked about specifically in the dance with dragons prologue by varamir sixkins about how the more you're melding in with your wolf the more you become more of the wolf the more the wolf takes over and the less the man becomes and i think that's going to be some of what happens with john in the Wind's Winter. i don't think we're going to see john as vermier sixkins essentially is what i'm saying john is going to be a little bit more ruthless a little bit more decisive in his actions but he's going not going to be the person that's necessarily going to be raping and murdering his way into the horror that vermier sixkins was as we find out in the dance of dragons prologue Something I think is, I'm going to reverse the question a little bit here, is that he had asked whether Jon would be more attracted to Daenerys. And I think it's actually going to be, I think Jon will be attracted to Danny, as George had apparently had told one of the directors from season one, that the that the point of the Song of Ice and Fire was Jon and Daenerys coming together. But I think the actual aspect of it will be that Daenerys will be more attracted to Jon. And I wrote an essay, I don't know, three or four years ago at this point, which I talked about the big bad wolf and how Daenerys is is. is Potentially is going to see John in in a way that she'll be very attracted to him. And what I mean by that is that in Dance with Dragons, Daenerys Targaryen is specifically kind of in this middle point between two major love interests. The one being Dario Noharis, Harris, him of the blue hair, and and, and Goldtooth, and his Darzo Laura, him of the tepid kisses. And this is the the so there's the one side that Dario's the violent, super violent, always calling for things like another red wedding in in uh, in Marine. And on the second side is his daughter's who just doesn't. Danny's not really all that attracted to, but ends up marrying because she feels like she has to for Marine and for her people in order to bring peace about. John, I think, actually threads the needle really well between Dario and his Darzo Lorex. So he will end up being more ruthless, more violent, but less Dario Naharis, and also the guy the two, that too that works to kind of bring the realm together, North and South, potentially, as we saw in season seven and season eight of the show. So I think that could be a reason why Daenerys Targaryen will be attracted to John. Again, I think John <laughs> will be attracted to Danny because we already see the precursor to that in the form of Val and a Storm of Swords and a Dance with Dragons, who John, of course, is obviously attracted to, and um, likely is supposed to be the precursor to Daenerys Targaryen, both in looks, features, and personality. So, I've talked for for a minute now, sir. What do you think about John as the White Wolf and the epithets that John might have, and what kind of reputation that will bring forward for John in the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring?
1: I agree. I think John is going to be less Vermeer or Dario and more uh, Beric and Cold Hands. And while both of those guys are certainly impressive and even admirable, there's also something very off-putting about both of them. And you don't necessarily... I mean, you know, obviously there are a lot of people devoted to Beric, but even, like, Lem, who's devoted to Beric, has to lie to himself about what's really happening (laughs) with Beric Dondarian. And I think there's going to be that aspect to Jon, too, where people are devoted to him and love his story, but they're, you know, going to probably be a little uneasy with who he really is. And, you know, Jon thinks to himself... At several points in this story, he's going to lose his reputation and be cursed as a black heart and an oath breaker, and that's you know, probably is what's going to happen for a lot of people. What happened when you, when it breaks down with Danny, and you know, I think it, it's with John. It's not so much a savage, you know, complete predator of a wolf, but more like you know the cold loner outsider, mm-hmm. kind of still the ghost model. Still, you know, definitely dangerous and even frightening, but not wild so much as kind of alienated and icy, so to speak. And I think that's that's more what John is going to be like. And I think, the, the you know, he kind of already is like that, but I think just kind of more so and more aggressively and less in control of himself just a little bit. And yeah, I like the idea of the, of the White Wolf as a moniker from George. That makes total sense, especially given, yeah, that John emphasis on bastards and colors early on in book one. Makes me think George has this in mind. And you have you know, Ghost is already right there as his white wolf. So I think that's that 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 could be something that they they picked up from from George and threw in there. Which a lot of the you know the seasons, later seasons, especially around seasons five and six, was bits and pieces they'd taken from George from Feaster Dance or what they knew from Winds and popping them into their own plots to to varying degrees of success. But I definitely that felt like one of those nuggets from the books for sure.
0: It absolutely did. And in, in the chat for our live stream, for those of you who are listening, uh, our friend Joe, the magician, says, Lord Snow, the white, W-I-G-H-T, wolf. So that could also work as also well. Also
1: true. Very yes. great point. Yep. He's the, the 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 undead. Very pale they tend to be. <laughs> Yikes. So thank you, Red Relu himself, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here for every episode of the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or Higher Level Patron over at patreon.com slash natacastasoyaf where you can get show notes, access to the Slack at the two highest tiers, and monthly bonus of Song of Ice and Fire and Fever Dream episodes.
0: Absolutely. And also, if you folks remember from last week, we had talked about having uh, artwork from Mallory, aka our friend San Rixian. We are going to be posting the poll for that tomorrow. For those of you who are watching live, and it will be open by the time this episode comes out for general release for all of our Sworn Sword or Higher patrons. So check out patreoncom forward slash not a cast, ASOIF to vote on the winning piece of artwork that is going to be featured in the free T-shirt that all of our Sworn Sword or Higher patrons will receive. And also we'll be gonna be recording both of our analyses of Fever Dream chapter 13, which is a fantastic chapter. And of course, the fifth and final part of the second coming, our full analysis of the wins winner, the Forsaken, over the next two weeks or so. So stay tuned. More content is coming. The content must flow. But enough about patreon when we last checked in with daenerys turkey she had bumbled her way through fantasy tampa aka karth getting rejected <laughs> by soulless bored pale weirdo floridians aka Karthine, and decided on a lark to check out the house of the undying just to see what's up let's find out if danny indeed makes it over to said house in this synopsis of a clash of kings daenerys for part one in this city of splendors, Danny had expected the House of the Undying Ones to be the most splendid of all, but she emerged from palanquin to behold a gray and ancient ruin." <sighs> Another great Karth chapter. Here we go. It's all image of a side. Yeah, yeah, George. We get it already. God. Hey, wait a second. Did Danny mention the House of the Undying? Long and low, with towers or windows, it coiled like a stone serpent through a grove of black bark trees, whose inky blue leaves made the stuff of the sorceress drink the Carthene called Shade of the Evening. No other building stood near. Black tiles covered the palace roof, many fallen or broken. The mortar between the stones was dry and crumbling. She understood now why Zorro, Daxus called at the Palace of Dust. Even Drogon seemed disquieted by the sight of it. The black dragon hissed smoke seeping out between his sharp teeth okay now it's kind of coming together inky blue leaves shade of the evening coming off of our analysis of the winds winner the forsaken that five part series i was referencing before that we've been doing this is starting to sound very very familiar it's finally happening guys we are in the house of the undying woot woot Jogo calls this an evil place, which yeah, but Jorah thinks this is just a fucking ruin and there is no power in it. Zaro says, just leave the warlocks and their palace of dust behind. They can't give Danny any ships. Aggo, another blo- another blood writer, says that few people come out of the Palace of Dust, which I, I guess is the thrilling narrative purpose of all those investigations the Dothraki were conducting back in Karth in Danny 2. Jogo agrees, and Aggo says they're sworn to live and die as Danny does. They want to go with her. Some places, even a call must walk alone. Danny said, "Take me then, Sir Dora urged. The risk, Queen Daenerys must enter alone or not at all." The warlock Pyatpri stepped out from under the trees. Has he been there all along? Danny wondered, like a fucking weirdo. Should she turn away now? The doors of wisdom shall be closed to her forevermore. Zorro says that Danny should come to his pleasure barge, which his flutist will soothe her mute with music, and a small girl will. God, I just. I fucking hate Zorro so attacks each time we read more about him I fucking hate him which of course that small girl will pleasure Danny I say no more. Jorah gives Zoro a sorrow look which may be Jorah's most human moment in the entirety of A Song of Ice and Fire. Jorah calls Danny to remember Miri Mazdor and Danny does. She had knowledge but she was only a Meiji. Pyat Pri smiles thinly, probably thinking about nothing at all because he has the personality of bleached construction paper, but he offers his arm to Danny to lead her into the house. She finds it dark under the trees, and the way was longer than it appeared from the outside. Pia tells her that the front goes in, not out. He urges her to listen to him. The house of the dying was for those who were dead. Danny needs to take care and listen to what he says. Danny promises that she will, and then Pyat Pri gives the rules of the game when you enter you will find yourself in a room with four doors the one you have come through and three others take the door to the right each time the door to the right if you should come upon a stairwell climb never go down and never take any door but the first door to your right the door to my right danny repeated. i understand and when i leave the opposite by no means pirate priest said leaving and coming it is the same always up always the door to your right other doors may open to you, within you will see many things that disturb you. Visions of loveliness and visions of horror, wonders and terrors, sights and sounds of days gone by and days to come, and days that never were. Dwellers and servitors may speak to you as you go, answer or ignore them as you choose, but enter no room until you reach the audience chamber." Denny says that she understands, and pyat priest states that when she gets to the Undying she needs to listen well and be patient for them. So Danny and Piatt reach the door, carved into the wall, which looks like a human face. Uh-huh, it's a haunted house. Got it, George. The smallest dwarf Danny has ever seen comes up to Danny and offers her a cup, telling her it's the shade of the evening. Will it turn my lips blue? Danny asks. One float will serve only to unstop your ears and dissolve the call from off your eyes, so that you may see and hear the truths that will be laid before you. Danny raised, the glips- Danny raised the glass to her lips. The first sip tasted like ink and spoiled meat. Foul. But when she swallowed it, it seemed to come to life within her. She could feel tendrils spreading through her chest like fingers of fire coiling around her heart. And on her tongue was a taste like honey and anise and cream. Like mother's milk and drogo seed. Like red meat and hot blood and molten gold. It was all the taste she had ever known. And none of them. And then the glass was empty. And that is A Clash of Kings Daenerys for Part 1. I, I don't know why, but coming to the end of this synopsis for the first part of Danny's fourth chapter to Clash of Kings, I feel like at long last Emmett, after 126 episodes, we have finally made it as in a song of ice and fire podcast. I, I think I'm almost positive. I said the same thing when we got to Ned's, Ned's execution from Arya's fifth chapter to Game of Thrones. <laughs> no matter. This is the chapter. I love it. What did you think, sir?
1: Ah, what a fateful coincidence that we should arrive at this chapter while in the middle of our five-part series on the Forsaken for patrons. That Aaron Dampere chapter, released from the Winds of Winter, is the evil twin to this chapter. If A Clash of Kings Daenerys IV is in part George's update of Alice in Wonderland, the Forsaken is what's waiting on the other side of the looking glass. And while the Forsaken is my favorite chapter in the series, in the published books, nothing captures what I love about this story quite like the House of the Undying. It sits atop the rising magical tide in the Clash of Kings, the definitive exploration of sorcery in the series so far. It is a crucial hinge in the story of Daenerys Targaryen, a harrowing gauntlet shaped for, and by, her, that will haunt her dreams and waking life alike going forward. It is a repository of the best imagery George brings to bear in A Song of Ice and Fire, every tableau rendered in glittering stardust. It's a case study in Pure Craft, in which the author plays on every emotion like strings, invoking horror and pity and shock and delight and utter stillness with equal measure. The reader as enthralled to his vision as Daenerys is. Like The Forsaken, it is a culturally resonant and uh, empirically accurate rendering of the psychedelic experience. And also like The Forsaken, it takes the form of a postmodern kaleidoscope of influences, a cacophony of reference points gradually finding its own distinct rhythm. Both chapters are journeys into the unknown. But what makes A Clash of Kings, Daenerys IV, its own beast, and probably my favorite chapter in this book, is the genre in question. The Forsaken is a work of horror, wearing that status proudly on its blood spattered sleeves. The House of the Undying is unmistakably high fantasy, the apex of the genre. It's perfection.
0: Perfection indeed, sir. And the most surprising thing about this chapter is how it just comes out of fucking nowhere. Okay, I mean, not nowhere exactly. Danny One has Danny occupying the Moses Wiseman, leading her people through the wilderness, pursuing a comet ever eastward. But little in Danny 2 and 3, really beyond Pyatt pre inviting Danny to the House of the Undying in Danny's second chapter, and of course the close of Danny 3, where she says, I must go to the House of the Undying, leads us to arguably the most high fantasy chapter in the series so far. This is the chapter that launched a thousand theories, a chapter that boggles the minds of the most serious fans of the series, and the chapter that appears as a series of near and far lighthouses as seen through a storm. Visions from this chapter that depict events from a storm of swords now appear bright in retrospect. And if we sail but just a little closer, we can make out the fuzzy outlines of the winds of winter and a dream of spring. But before all that, I think it's important to talk about the structure and purpose of this chapter. So, Emmett, sir, take us away.
1: Mm, Beautifully said. And I agree. Before we get into the chapter proper, I think we need to talk about how we see it as a whole. Because it is arguably the most structurally radical and unique chapter in the series, and it demands the most active reader engagement. Danny's trip through the House of the Undying can be seen as a shamanic vision quest fitting into her messianic arc that you were talking about. It can be seen as a self-contained attribute to the psychedelic era, an interrogation of the concepts of magic and prophecy and fantasy, a refinement of George's particular exploration of Corp city hive minds in his previous works, etc., etc., etc. It is like this by design. As with many of the images contained within, this chapter can bear multiple threads of interpretation, because that is the nature of the divine sight Danny experiences in this chapter. If there is one way of looking at this chapter that appeals to me the most, it is that the House of the Undying is a metaphor for the creative process, and more specifically for the contact point between author and audience. What was it Jojen Reed said in A Dance with Dragons? A reader lives a thousand lives. And that is the animating idea of this chapter. The Undying are undying because they are steeped in story, marinated in it like their pickles or pig's feet. They feast on imagery, on foreshadowing, plot beats give them literal power. Their house is alive with story, the word made flesh. Danny wanders past narrative branches, subplots calling out to her from past, present, and future. Bran takes a journey to the tree of life beyond the wall, while well, Danny has journeyed to the tree of story. In essence, the house of the undying is George R. R. Martin's brain on drugs. Danny literally enters the building through a door shaped like a mouth, in a wall shaped like a face. She's accessing his creative process. His mind is a swirl with concepts, characters, plot beats hidden in the backstory or waiting to emerge in the books yet to come. Danny sees them and hears them, all without quite knowing what they are. The Red Wedding is here. Eris' order regarding the wildfire is here. The Song of Ice and Fire is here, the only time that phrase appears in the story for which it's named. This is the font, the wellspring of narrative itself. It's difficult to imagine a more effective imprinting of an author's soul on their work, and it's all done through imagery, metaphor, its astonishing artistry. This chapter, therefore, is a work of metafiction, constantly calling attention to the nature of its own construction in order to force the reader to contemplate our own role in shaping the meaning of narrative fiction. It is a labyrinth not only for Danny, but for us. Danny stands in for the reader. The House of the Undying dwells in the space between text and audience. And as with the kinds of all the kinds of ways of thinking about this chapter within the story, there are so many influences to talk about with the House of the Undying. I mentioned Alice in Wonderland. I haven't talked about Doors of Perception in a little bit. You can talk about Dune. You can talk about The Last Temptation of Christ. Stephen Atwell did a great comparison of it to a, to a Christmas Carol, on and on. But we can also think about this chapter as part of the specific lineage in metafiction, ranging from Don Quixote to the works of Thackeray to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, to pick a more kind of vaguely contemporary model for George.
0: Yeah, those are all like fantastic points. And I think you really, really nailed it. Like this chapter, it functions as a work of metafiction. And it's in that light that I'm going to attempt to piece together a little bit of what was going on in the background of what George was doing in writing A Song of Ice and Fire and where his thinking for the series was around the year 1998. feels like yesterday. I'll try not to get too, too in the weeds here, but I do have a forthcoming essay which will get very much in the weeds called The Bastard Narrative. And I say no more. First off, as we've talked about in our episode on A Clash of Kings Danny 1, Danny was never supposed to come to Karth. The pitch, the pitch letter has Danny birthing dragons, then gathering Doth- the Dothraki, and then invading Westeros. George himself indicated that he finished all of the Danny material for Game of Thrones before he finished what became a Game of Thrones itself, circa 1994-1995. So here we can definitively say that this was not leftover material from the first book. It was written in 1996 or after, probably closer to the end of When a Clash of Kings was finished. And I. Going to make the argument that this is one of the final chapters from *A Clash of Kings* that was completed, but again, that aforementioned essay will cover that. In an overall sense, this chapter works to see the future of the story in its ambiguous and oft-debated prophecies. It's also here that I think we see Martin thinking about the future of the series. He's thinking, like, "I've got this, the basics down at this point. Where is all of this going?" And as Adam Whitehead noted, uh, aka Wordhead noted in his Facts and Figures article about a Clash Kings, George began to think about this future and he decided to do something unique. So this is Adam writing, he says, this time George wrote a more detailed outline. This new outline, which has never been seen publicly, suggested to him that the whole series would be longer than originally planned. What had been the first novel was going to be three, whilst the originally planned fi- final book would now be two. As a result, the series leapt from four volumes to six. A Game of Thrones, A Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, A Dance with Dragons, The Winds of Winter, and A Time of Wolves. A title he disliked, but a better one escaped him for the moment. I think this outline that George developed for the series coincides strongly with events from this chapter and the things that Danny sees specifically about the future. And we're not going to see this outline, as Adam indicated, until after A Song of Ice and Fire is finished, and it will. just hashtag belief, but I think the outline was inspired directly by the writing of this chapter. Intriguingly, we see some glimpses of moments that are going to occur in the Storm of Swords that now appear very bright, as I was saying before. The Red Wedding, Mysa, Jamie's revelation about the backstory of Aerys Targaryen. But published stuff from Feast and Dance is kind of largely absent from the book, with the maybe exception, and we're going to talk about this specifically in part three, I think, of this, this series, the exception of the dead face with gray lips smiling sadly and this makes sense because George really didn't want Danny to be invading in the Winds of Winter. He wanted Danny in Westeros by the time of a Dance with Dragons as he stated a few times in the years after the publication of A Clash of Kings. But Danny's invasion was pushed back to the Winds of Winter and perhaps even to a Dream of Spring. So we're seeing glimpses of material from the Winds of Winter and also a dream of spring. And that's a huge part of why this chapter is exciting and why us as fans and why fans all over the world keep coming back to this chapter, plumbing its steps for hints for the future of this story.
1: I couldn't agree more. The House of the Undying is a means for the author to communicate to us not only the expansion of his story, but the the excitement and awe he feels about it. Story is given form as a labyrinth, a familiar archetype underneath all the surreal imagery. Whereas in our Forsaken episodes, I argued that the urtext of that chapter is Augustine's Confessions. Here, I'm going to argue that the urtexts for The House of the Undying are two stories by Jorge Luis Borges. Borges reigns supreme in metafictional literature, as much as Samuel Beckett in metafictional theater, or Jean-Luc Godard in metafictional film. Umberto Eco makes a direct reference to Borges in The Name of the Rose, a book about the sacred uncertainties of text, and I'm going to come back to it in later episodes. And my boy, Thomas Pynchon, makes up a Borges couplet out of thin air in Gravity's Rainbow, just makes one up and attributes it to him. The labyrinth of your uncertainty and meshes me with the disquieting moon. So why does Borges loom so large for those interested in breaking the border between text and audience? His fictions, as he always termed them, used blatant artificiality to expose that really there is no easily definable border between art and life. Thought and language, text and memory, performance and identity, all the concerns of the House of the Undying, the distinctions between these things are so porous as to be irrelevant when you try to pin them down. Reading Borges's stories is not about following an exciting plot, nor becoming dramatically invested in a single character. It's about the queasy exhilaration of realizing that, without your consent, you have become part of the story. This form is laid out most exquisitely and memorably in A Garden of Forking Paths, a story about a character who tries to hide from his killer in a labyrinth built by his ancestor, only to find that the quote-unquote labyrinth is actually a book. The book is a labyrinth because every time a character within it makes a choice, the author depicts the splintering off of alternate dimensions with the outcomes of the various choices. The story itself that we are reading is shaped from a bewildering spiral of, of perspectives and fragmented information and possible deceptions. The protagonist does make his choice, yet cannot escape his fate, laid out explicitly at the beginning of his of the story when he realizes his killer is coming for him. A, a hilarious little coincidence, you know. The, the killer's name in that story is Richard Madden, which I think is so funny. It's Rob <laughs> Stark. Rob Stark is coming to kill the protagonist. Along the way to his ancestor's house, the protagonist is told to reach it by turning left again and again. And you can see the connection to this chapter when Danny gets told to turn right and right, right again and again in the House of the Undying. Within this maze-like atmosphere of repetition, the protagonist finds serenity, losing himself in nature. And Borges puts it so beautifully. I thought of a maze of mazes of a sinuous, ever-growing maze which would take in both past and future and would somehow involve the stars. Lost in these imaginary illusions, I forgot my destiny, that of the hunted. For an undetermined period of time, I felt myself cut off from the world, an abstract spectator. And such is exactly the position Danny finds herself in this chapter, a perceiver of the world, in which reality is rendered as art, which is pure thought and being. Yet as in Borges, the dictates of time, fate, and mortality all snap shut around us, even as we wander this labyrinth of enlightenment, and the same thing happens to Danny. If Garden of Forking Paths captures the spirit of the House of the Undying, Borges' story, Tower of Babel, lays out the structure. The biblical invocation of that title fits House of the Undying perfectly. The house is a monument to story, language, although an image as much as word, a ladder to the divine. In Tower of Babel, the universe is a library, seemingly infinite, containing all works, none of them ever repeated, and everyone just pursues them forever. The library is broken off into hexagonal platforms, like that room with the six doors early on in the House of the Undying. The residents theorize that their vindications, as they put it, must await somewhere in the library, and they all fight each other for the privilege of finding them. Again, the connection to the House of the Undying is clear. Both Danny and the reader project into these prophetic images, hoping to be right, but trapping us is their true function. Information and artistic expression become weaponized, turn inward on the seekers of knowledge. It only torments us in our incompleteness. What the House of the Undying does is it applies the insight of Borges' stories and those influenced by him to high fantasy. Those, those labyrinthine images, those kind of mirrors of creation become sorcerous prophecy in this chapter.
0: Well, that's brilliant, man. I mean, I've never read Borges, not only due to my unforgivable illiteracy, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's actually what, what George is doing a lot with this this chapter. And to kind of bring it into like the context of Danny's overall arc in A Clash of Kings, the Warlocks have tempted Danny to come to the House of the Undying with the promises of giving her truth and wisdom, as Pyatpri told Danny back in Danny Two. Invitations by the Undying Ones were as quote rare as the summer snows. That phrase, summer snows, that kind of triggered a memory in my mind about the creation and background to A Song of Ice and Fire proper. And then, I'm because I'm a fucking nerd, I decided to look through the So Spake Martin archive, and I found found George talking about this phrase in a BBC interview from 2012, where he says, Suddenly, I just got this idea of vision, whatever I saw the scene with the finding of those wolf pups by some medieval people in the summer snows. I remember that phrase, the summer snows, so I knew that there was something wonky about the seasons even then. But I knew very little else, but the scenes came so vividly to me that I knew I had to write it, so I put the other book aside." So I, you know, unforgivably again, I didn't catch it back in Daenerys' second chapter in A Clash of Kings, but in re-looking at the use of the phrase summer snows, I I think it might be actually super important to the series. Now, again, this gets super deep into the, the meta of A Song of Ice and Fire proper, and maybe it's totally fucking bonkers. I mean, it is me after all. But George's use of that alliterative phrase, Summer Snows, with regards to the Undying might have a lot of significance in the context of how that phrase, Summer Snows, became the genesis for all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And now, Zaro, Zoe, and Daxus uses the same phrase to indicate how rare it would be for Danny to receive an invitation from the Undying Ones. That's... Significant, I feel like. And here's my interpretation of why it's significant. Through the House of the Undying, George is inviting the reader into the creative process, the primordial ooze of words and phrases that George gardens into sentences, then paragraphs, chapters, and whole books. Think about it in the context of things we know about Danny's arc from A Storm of Swords. A thousand tongues shouting, Mother, was an inspiration for Danny's conquest of Astapor and Yunkai, and the free men of Yunkai shouting, Misa, 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 to Danny as they lifted her up after the liberation of the slaves of Yunkai. Meanwhile, the cloth dragon swaying on poles amidst a cheering crowd is something that hasn't happened yet, but this very likely refers to young Griff's initial triumph in Westeros. In that example, George hasn't gardened his way into the full revelation of the plot, or maybe he has by the time we're recording this. God, I hope so. But that's the spark of inspiration that drove George's writing of the Blackfire plot forward. Shortly after the publication of A Clash of Kings, George wrote notes about the backstory inspired from this spark as I was talking about before, imagined up the sword Blackfire, Aegon the Fourth, and then thought about Aegon the Fourth legitimizing his bastards and granting the sword to Daemon Blackfire. Then he thought of the Blackfyre Rebellions, the Battle of the Redgrass Fields, the Sworn Sword, John Cunnington's backstory in Robert's Rebellion and A Storm of Swords, and eventually young Griff popping up in Tyrion's chapters in A Dance of Dragons and the Golden Company's invasion of Westeros at the end of A Dance of Dragons. The cloth dragon swaying on poles amidst a cheering crowd has yet to be revealed, but that event is likely coming in the Winds of Winter. So when we think about the House of the Undying then we might think of it as summer snows, the raw material that inspires George to imagine and create the dizzying and immense worlds, characters and plots that captivate us over and
1: over again. Yeah, it's those those bolts of inspiration that strike from the blue when you have to capture them, bottle them up somehow. And just like the phrase summer snows, those those bolts of inspiration you know, sometimes don't make a great deal of sense, or logical sense, but that's what makes them so powerful, and that's what makes them stick with you, and I have, to, I have to convey these impossible, fantastical ideas somehow, and we're just trying to get that across to us in this chapter. And so as we enter the chapter proper, let's review how it works within the context of Karth as a setting, and Daenerys' A Clash of Kings plot as a story. Karth is a city of stone cows, as Danny put it in her last chapter. A city that promises everything and delivers nothing. A gorgeous, overwhelming sea of imagery that ultimately functions as a mirage. Danny only ever gets the decorative surface of what she needs. Everyone is promising to help, but what they really want is for her to get stuck in place. So distracted by the beauty and intricacy of everything that she doesn't realize, there's nothing of substance underneath. Danny winds up a cog in the machine. A temporary sideshow used to uh, put some money in the pockets of the already very wealthy. It's all a con. And the reason I love the House of the Undying so very much, despite being kind of meh on the rest of Karth, (laughs) is not because it changes the game. It changes what Karth is all about and how it's about it. It's because it takes all those themes and imagery and finally weaponizes them, turning them into the fantastical gears of a suspense set piece instead of just pointing at them and going, oh, look at that. Isn't that potentially interesting? (laughs)
0: That's a great point. And I mean, like the thing that I've been like trying to like turn over my mind is we've been, I've read this chapter probably about two dozen times since we, we started doing the research writing for this chapter is whether the narrative purpose of the crumbling aesthetic for the house of the dying is to make the reality of Karth such as it is, meh, a metaphor in the house of the dying, or is it similar to Arya's chapter from last week, where the metaphor becomes a reality, where the changing faces is what Jack and Agar does, which of course is symbolizing what Arya is doing throughout a clash of kings. I guess the argument for the former is how the beauty of Karth is constantly expanded upon, but it's all crumbling, decaying lives inside of it, people that are just listless and dying on the inside. And I think the argument for the latter derives from the undying themselves, as we'll find on part three, as they appear beautiful and speak well until their true faces are revealed to be dead, their words coming out as a death whisper or a rattle. And since you made this wonderful point last week with Arya's story, sir, I figure I would turn it over to you to resolve this internal contradiction in my own mind about what Karth is actually representing.
1: Well, I think you're getting at something really important—the kind of the slippage between metaphor and reality, and an image and the thing it's referring to. It's never quite clear in Karth what the distinction is, and that's especially the case in in the House of the Undying. And that's that's what makes it so dangerous. Like, are we seeing Karth as it really is? I mean, kind of, but we're also seeing weird abstract imagery that has nothing to do with <laughs> Karth. You know, everything on the outside was more concrete, but also more obviously deceitful, so it's it's very difficult to say which is the real face. They're just very different kind of gauntlets for Danny to run. Overall, though, the House of the Undying, this is what I wanted the rest of Karth to be like. A place where the deceit and indulgence has real teeth behind it, a place where I can feel some sense of danger. Of course, this is the climax, and so there is a particular catharsis to this face of the city emerging at last, and that wouldn't be there without the setup. Danny has been sufficiently frustrated by Zero, and just confused by Quaithe, to put her trust in the most obviously untrustworthy of her three wise men. Piat Pri and the Warlocks are mistrusted by everyone. By the other Carthene, yeah, but also by Jorah and the Dothraki. Every culture around Danny hates them. It doesn't matter where you're from, everyone knows not to live like this, in utter thrall to sorcery and drugs. This is the wrong path for Danny to take. But she's here. She's not, you know, marrying Zero. She's not giving up and retreating to Vase, to Loro, City of Bones. She's here because this seems like the only path to Westeros and her crown. She needs power to get there. And while Karth seems to embody every kind of power, none of it's accessible to her, and that is starting to eat away at her on the inside.
0: Right. And I think one of the things that might have been inspiring George's creation of Carth and of the House of the Undying and this kind of mystics and warlocks that are that Dan is going to be encountering here momentarily is how the late 90s brought a slew of media about rich white people who grew aborted with their wealth and status and sought wisdom from mystics, particularly Buddhists and within the religion of Buddhism itself or the philosophy rather. Then there was American cinema of the 90s with the white people finding truth and wisdom from Native Americans and Asian mystics. Think of movies like Dances with Wolves, Legends of the Fall, Seven Years in Tibet, they all come to mind. The general draw was that the wealthy grew bored and sought the ethereal and the different. With Danny, I think we're seeing something similar, albeit her temptations are to join with the wealthy of Karth, but she finds the theme rather repulsive, their lifestyles bored and listless. So if they're not going to get her where she needs to go, Westeros, Perhaps it's time to seek out the mystics of Karth. If everyone hates the warlocks in Karth, and Dana herself hates all of the Karthine, maybe they're on the same team, right? Maybe they can share interests to gain power together,
1: right? Mm, not so much, but I <laughs> know I love that comparison though to the kind of you know, like the fight club American beauty, almost like a listlessness of, of of the American You know, post-Cold War conquering capitalist nation that kind of a lot of people were looking around and going, oh, is this it? Is this what we got? And feeling some sort of sense of of paranoia or just uh, ennui setting in. Yeah, there's the, the, the movie with Julianne Moore called Safe about mm. this this housewife who starts developing what uh, her kind of gurus start to call an addiction to the twentieth century. Where like every like cleaning supply and every like new appliances seems to make her sick and they can't tell if it's psychosomatic or not and she has to just keep living in smaller and more contained spaces. And her guru says, We are the one with the power that created us. We are safe and all is well in our world. Mm. And this is that kind of specifically like new age, like you know, obviously I'm not slagging on the actual mystic roots of, of Buddhism itself, but like specifically the, you know, the muhaha, the money grinder machine, let's get white people hooked on this very superficial version of that. That I, that has that has real cultural resonance when George was writing this book specifically. So I would not be surprised if he's, he's trying to reflect that and trying to reflect how a lot of it was a grift, mm-hmm. even though it was promising enlightenment. You know, Karth is such a city of splendors, as Danny says, and so she had expected the House of the Undying to be the most beautiful sight of all, the very heart of beauty in this world. But it's not. Instead, it's the ugliest part of the city. There's nothing to it, architecturally, it's just a straight line. It's dusty, it's moldy, it's breaking down. The House of the Undying is a twisted mirror image of the Hall of a Hundred Thrones, where the Pureborn heard and rejected Danny's plea. The Undying are ultimately just as listless as the Pureborn, and just as malevolent with their intentions regarding Danny. The exterior of their lair, however, does not speak to the ostentatious beauty and wealth beloved by the pureborn and zero, and so forth. Instead, the outside of the house of the undying exposes what Carth actually is—a decrepit, dilapidated hallway <laughs> that leads Danny nowhere, even as it dazzles her along the way. The other Carthine dislike the undying so much in part because they reveal the apathetic rot that truly rules their city of skin-deep beauty. They call it the Palace of Dust. No other buildings stand nearby, as if the decay of both magical and political power is a disease they can all catch. Now that's not to say that the Undying are actually uniquely interested in truth. Rather, they take Karth's addiction to deceptive surface surfaces to its logical extreme. They are so hooked on ideas, images, concepts, that they have let physical reality around them completely fall to pieces. It's another haunted city of bones. As such, George frames the House of the Undying as a temptation from which Danny is warned off by everyone around her, warnings she ignores one and all. The Dothraki hate it because it violates their cultural taboos surrounding magic, but it's also because they've heard that no one who enters ever leaves. And in mythological terms, you know, this is the Greek underworld. This is the, the, the land of the lotus eaters that we see in Homer. But, you know, in more kind of modern pop-cultural terms, it's a haunted house, as you say. It's, it's Willy Wonka's factory. It's the Hotel California. In more serious terms, it's something like Hollywood or Wall Street. It's every labyrinth of wonder and power that lures you in, but is never really going to let you leave. At a purely visceral level, the house seems to back up these fears. It drinks the morning sun, as Jogo says. It's a, a vampiric invocation of evil. The House of the Undying is like Valyrian steel, drawing its power by absorbing light and blood and converting the raw elements of humanity into pure power. It draws Danny in as well, a character often associated with light and the sun and fire. It has a magnetic, seductive quality to it, like power itself or like, like art. It you know, draws in light like the lens of a camera. Yet, as Jorah asks, what power can they have if they live in that? (laughs) So what if it drinks the sunlight and has a fearsome reputation? Look at it. It's a ruin. This is the duality at the heart of the House of the Undying. Is this a vision of power at its apex or at its nadir? Or is it somehow both at once? Does the ruinous state of the House of the Undying speak to the power they have attained, that they have transcended this physical plane? Or does it speak to the hollowing out effective power? They're so stoned they don't even pay attention to <laughs> taking care of their living environment. Even as this chapter indulges in dazzling high fantasy imagery, it is profoundly uneasy about the state of mind such imagery supports. Will Danny too end up rising and falling from power at the same time? So struck by prophetic imagery all around her that she doesn't realize until it's too late? that she has left the real physical world a decaying ruin?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question that Danny's going to have to encounter as she walks the the halls of the the Undying. And I'm reminded of the, the aesthetic behind the House of the Undying with the thinking about Joraman's horn which George had mentioned up in a clash of kings and which was a part of John's story as we covered several months ago back in John 4 and 5 and I was thinking about it in terms of what you were saying back in your History of Westeros episode on Great on Greyjoy and about comparing that to Indiana Jones and Last Crusade and the the Cup of Christ and the other cups that Indy, Indy sees there are all jeweled and magnificent and wonderful and glorious but the cup that Indy actually drinks from that is the Cup of Christ, it's a carpenter's cup, it's the, is the, the that's really made that everything that Spielberg did a really good job with the other cups that Danny sees in Karth are jewels in comparison to the crumbling palaces of dust I think about the 13 the manse of Zarozo and Daxus who which is dwarf Selira manse these things appear so glorious and beautiful and alluring but at the same time the contrast to the horn that John finds and the chalice Indiana Jones drinks from the form of the house the undying I think it actually matches the aesthetic.
1: Yeah, there really is no kind of humble choice in Karth. It's either like splendid, you know, decadence or decaying decadence. Like, you know, it's either the palace in its heyday or the House of the Undying, which is, you know, you get the sense, though, this is what Karth really looks like when you stick around long enough. This is what all that leads you to. Still, though, we as readers understand Danny's decision to proceed. Because the alternative is falling back on Zerozo and Daxos, who is just as manipulative, not to mention exploitative. Yeah, that mention of the young girl with her tongue that will make Danny sigh and melt. Ugh. <laughs> Political and magical figures take potshots at one another, but ultimately they serve the same structure—the double helix DNA strand of power—that is the structure of a Clash of Kings. Danny spends her time in Carth trying to make these structures work for her. They don't. So she burns them down in the Storm of Swords, only to find in A Dance with Dragons that she can't seem to avoid recreating them. Prophecy drives her on as she goes. She's always looking for home, trying to find the wisdom that will unlock her path. And wisdom is precisely what Piat Pri offers her. He emerges spookily from the trees, like a white walker, to tempt her with the Doors of Wisdom, which is in all likelihood a reference to William Blake via Aldous Huxley. It's difficult to imagine the capital-R romantic era of the verbal and visual arts without Blake's influence. He found ecstasy in the natural world, looked upon religious structures with trepidation, and argued through his works that man was forever caught in between the beast and the angel. Of particular relevance to The House of the Undying is his seminal work, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, a a subversive mixture of prose and poetry composed in the wake of the American and French revolutions. Blake riffed heavily on Dante and Milton to argue that, rather than representing a strict moral binary, heaven and hell reflected different aspects of humanity and more kind of a universal sense of energy. The title of Blake's book is an ironic reference to Heaven and Hell, a book by Christian mystic and philosopher Emanuel Swedenborg that attempts to lay out the metaphysical structure of the universe in detail. Blake loved the the cosmic grandiosity of Swedenborg's approach, but was unsatisfied by that, that strict binary view of good and evil. Blake argued that, instead, we should think about heaven and angels as embodying rational controlling structures and think of hell and devils as embodying creative energy and freedom, and the two feed on one another. And you can see how this would appeal to George R. R. Martin, who draws from Faulkner and Solanitzen to argue that good and evil coexist within us. The human heart represents the marriage of heaven and hell, the unity of seeming opposites. We can never resolve the contradiction, for it is us. Blake believed that art, nature, the combination of the two, could lead mankind to this insight about the order of things and about ourselves, with the quote that launched a thousand acid trips, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite, for man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. It's an extension of the allegory of Plato's cave, and it has obvious applications for the House of the Undying. Danny's vision has been cleansed, and now she sees the infinite connected nature of everything. Author and philosopher Aldous Huxley borrowed Blake's line for the title of Doors of Perception, which is basically a drug diary in which he recorded his experiences on mescaline, drawing heavily from Blake's concepts. The psychedelic experience, Huxley argues, strips away functionality from objects and leaves them as they truly are, pure being for you to behold. It also takes away your ego, leaving you with not I, the passive observer of the world described by Borges in Garden of Forking Paths. Huxley entitled his follow-up essay Heaven and Hell, clearly following in the footsteps of both Blake, Blake and Swedenborg. In that essay, he argued that the extremes of experience in the human mind are the true embodiment of heaven and hell and can be reached via psychedelics. These areas of the mind are not biologically useful and so cannot be accessed easily, but they're where spirituality comes from. This is the inner labyrinth that will lead us to heaven, but also simultaneously to hell, for they are forever entwined within our perception. This is the path Daenerys Targaryen follows throughout her story, made its most explicit here. She is both in control and not. Rising to heaven and falling to hell at the same time, expanding her perception, but always still, forever, a victim of it. Piat Pri says she must come now and alone, or the doors of wisdom will remain shut. Danny hungers for truth, the thing in itself, which is precisely what Carth has denied her. She badly wants that cleansed perception, and so she goes with him.
0: Mm, and I think the thing is that Danny can't see that Piat Pri is selling her a bill of goods. And he's using a tried-and-true method of salespeople everywhere. Being a former salesperson myself, the urgency of the sale. Pai has imposed an artificial deadline to advertise the value of his product. Truth. Wisdom. He's embedded a cosmic FOMO into Danny. Used powerful titles. The undying to win her over. It's a one-time offer, Danny. You ain't gonna get better prices elsewhere. The temptation is so strong for Danny to take the offer because she is magical. She did do some magical shit at the end of a Game of Thrones. And that sense of destiny carried her from the birth of the dragons across the Red Waste and ended up in fucking Karth. People died also to get her where she is, and there's kind of an implicit sunk cost fallacy to Danny's choice here. If I look back, I am lost. Is more than pressing ever forward. It's the belief that Danny is being carried forward by destiny. Pyatpri had to know all the above. He was one of the three wise men, two men, one woman, actually, who came to Vase Toloro to seek out Daenerys. He's heard her story and how he's using that kernel of information to sell Danny
1: a bill of false goods. And Jorah cautions her to remember Marie Durr. Last time you gave yourself over to sorcerers, they did not bring you clarity nor satisfaction. Last time you presided over the marriage of heaven and hell, it ended with the end of your pregnancy, the death of your husband, and also the collapse of your khalasar. Such are the wages of the fiery ladder. You have been warned. But Danny rejects this final warning. She remembers things her own way. She remembers that Miri Mazda had wisdom, which is precisely what Piat has offered her. And that demonstrates that magic is, is not just a gigantic fraud. There is something real to be uncovered here, waiting for her just beyond the doors of perception. What Jora is trying to get Danny to recognize is that, yeah, there's something real there, but you've already been through these doors once. He carried her through them, in fact, back in Book One. The Desert of the Real, waiting in Miri's tent, was a horror show. Why would the House of the Undying be different? But Danny dismisses Miri as having only been a Meiji. Well wait a minute, Danny, that's contradictory. <laughs> Did Miri have vital wisdom or was she only a Meiji? Well it's both. Kinda of whatever Danny needs to tell herself to make this, you know, d- difficult decision she's making. Miri having wisdom means Danny is right to walk through the doors of perception. Mary, being only a Meiji means she has nothing to fear. But you really can't have it both ways. If something is powerful enough to change your life, it's also powerful enough to erase your life. It's a sword without a hilt. There might be no safe way to wield it. Danny can't accept that, and I sympathize because her other options just don't seem much better. Can she manage to weld these opposites together? Piat Pri says she already has. She's a child who speaks with the wisdom of a crone, as he puts it. Oh, so she is all archetypes brought together, the threefold goddess made into one. The marriage of heaven and hell, breaking down the borders of space-time. But of course, piat is lying to her, <laughs> manipulating her as the Undying themselves will. They offer her not truth, but more potent mirages. This is George reckoning with how what seems like enlightenment can be a lie. Huxley himself said that the drugs themselves... Offer nothing more than temporary grace, momentary insight. It all fades. Danny is looking for something permanent, undying, you could say, but that doesn't actually exist. Everything will keep slipping through her fingers. Absolutely.
0: And the trap of prophecy and secret information is a really alluring trap, right? And like you, I, I find it fascinating that Danny's hearkening back to Miri Mazdor of all people and seeing her as still having wisdom. Looking at at MMD again, Danny continuously thinks that her final fuck-off when the sun rises in the east, rises in the west rather, when the seas go dry, etc. Those words meant something more than what Miri likely meant it as when pigs fly. Here, Danny is still seeking the hidden truth and meaning of what Miri Mazdor told her, saying that she had real power and truth to offer. But that kind of contrasts, again, to what she was thinking back just two chapters prior, when she was must, much less sanguine about Miri Mazdor, when she thinks Danny was wary of the warlock, the Meiji Miri Mazdor had soured her on those who played up sorcery. But now, well, Miri Mazdor and the House of the Dying work as temptations to engage in sorcery again, despite the disastrous consequences of sorcery at the end of her Game of Thrones story with Kyle Droko specifically. And uh, can we see a parallel to Stannis' line from A Storm of Swords? Yet dare I disregard her, yet dare I disregard magic. And for those of you who are keeping your bingo cards, ding! Like Stannis, Danny filters her own perspective into sorcery, giving it its own meaning. The Warlocks claim that they can provide Danny with wisdom and truth, but they're mostly lying to her. Much as Miri Mazdor mostly lied to her about saving Drogo's life. If Danny is meant to be the reader avatar for much of this chapter... Maybe George is kind of calling us out too. Maybe we self-deceive ourselves into reading too deeply into the text of *A Song of Ice and Fire*. Now, Danny is a special, and she has good reason to think that she is special, as I was talking about before. The problem for Danny is that her status as the chosen one doesn't lend itself to ethereal omniscience. She has to seek gnosis, the Greek word for secret knowledge, and she chooses sorcery as the means to discover truth. But not all, but not all sources of knowledge are of equal value, Danny she walks into the flames and came out with three dragons and remember that moment that Miriam door is tied to the stake there and she is mocking her attempts then but danny did that all by herself without an external factor helping her out and the knowledge that she is going to gain here at the house of the undying the secrets that she'll unravel they don't actually help her in the long term at all consider the prophecy of like the three treasons for instance Something we will cover in part three it doesn't help Danny uncover who the treasons are. Rather, it kind of makes her a little paranoid, wondering who is the one who is behind the treasons. Is it Jora? Maybe Illyrio? Maybe someone else? Sorcery amps her suspicions, creates ambiguity and self doubt in Danny, and has nothing but hardship for Danny throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. In other words, as George has stated in the past, magic doesn't simplify, it doesn't provide a shortcut. It complicates narratives, lays out a hard route for the protagonist to walk. And that's exactly the path that Danny is going to walk here in the House of the Undying.
1: And that's why the, the classic form of the labyrinth is so appropriate. On loan from Borges and on loan also from the Greeks, as I'm going to talk about in, in later episodes. And, you know, it's, it's just as, yeah, as Danny goes, it gets, gets curiouser and curiouser. Again, that kind of that Alice in Wonderland feeling. Danny follows the white rabbit, Piat Pri, and immediately discovers that nothing in Wonderland is as it appears. Every image is a deception, a lure, a trap. The path is darker than she thought, and longer. It's a metaphor for her own narrative path as a character, which is never as simple as she wants it to be. They don't head for the front door because that way doesn't lead back out again. In other words, Danny may want a linear path, but a one-way ticket for humanity has only one possible destination: death. We saw that in her dream back in a Game of Thrones, Danny Nine, which which prefigured House of the Undying in many ways. The true story shape is not a line but a circle. We only think it's a line due to our limited perception, which also tells us that our round world is flat. Gravity's rainbow is a circle with neither beginning nor end. We see only the arc of the rainbow. The hero's journey is a circle that looks to the hero like a line. By recognizing these story shapes, distillations and imitations of life, we can at least psychologically break the bonds of death and conceive of life as a regenerating cycle. If Danny is the reader, if the House of the Undying stands in for story itself, you could say we're being instructed to think carefully about how we go into a narrative. Because that is going to determine what we take away with when we come full circle at the end.
0: Right. And I think it's def- definitively, not definitively, definitely about the story itself, but also it's about the creative process of creating stories, especially George's process. The writer enters a room with his or her character, and there are four doors to choose from. Where does the author take the character and the story from there? Now George has talked about how he doesn't write linearly. He he didn't start writing *A Game of Thrones by writing the prologue and proceeding forward. He actually wrote Bran's first chapter and then Catelyn's chapter and several chapters thereafter. But George has talked about how he'll write from one point of view's perspective before circling back to write another point of view while also engaging in additional circles back to rewrite earlier chapters to fit the narrative of the story as it progresses and develops. Meanwhile, story directions that George attempts, they often result in dead ends. We can only look at the cut Tyrion chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where Tyrion meets the shrouded Lord, that George really, really tried to make work, but ultimately it led George into a dead end for Tyrion's story in A Dance with Dragons, so he ended up cutting it completely out of the book itself. Or we can also see how George wrote three versions, or doors, of when Quentin Martell arrived in Meereen, to see how each version worked in the context of the later chapters of A Dance with Dragons. The pathways for creation circle. There are false starts and the closed doors abound. You write for hours, days, weeks, months, years, pursuing the path towards literary greatness, and sometimes you hit it, like George, and sometimes you don't.
1: Oh, hush! No, that's great. Like I, I, that's a perfect way to think about Aschenbach. Like it's, you're running through a bunch of rooms that all look the same, and then suddenly there's even more past. Like that is that's creative block. Like that's what it, that's what it must feel like. And yet sometimes you stumble upon these pockets of of inspiration and exhilaration that it feels like like it's not even you, like God is moving through your pen. And that's what the House of the Undying is about. Piat tells Danny that the house was not made for mortals, it was made for more godlike figures. The power of narrative is ultimately the power of creation. Artists create in imitation of the divine. Stories aren't real, in the same way the visions Danny sees in the House of the Undying aren't really real. But they refer to real things, and their power over us is very real. It's true that the House of the Undying was not made for mortals, because it was made for fictional characters, <laughs> who by their very nature are immortal. Danny can never die. We are the ones who really experience Danny's life and death, just as the images in the House of the Undying aren't meaningful without someone to see them. And this sense of, of destabilization and kind of the, the mirror turning on, on the reader and the observer, it carries over to the rules that Piat tells Danny about how to operate within the House of the Undying in order to survive. And I'm going to talk more about the rules regarding the dwellers and servitors and images more next week, but talking here about the rules about how you just have to keep turning right and if you reach stairs you just got to climb, but even when you're coming back you have to do the same thing. These rules just emphasize that nothing here makes sense that the structures around Danny do not conform to our mortal perception. It is again like the whimsical absurdism of Wonderland, in which characters tell Alice utter nonsense in earnest tones, as if they're helping. Or um, the recent Charlie Kaufman movie that hit Netflix, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, uh, that has this kind of logic where... Characters are constantly trying to explain what's going on, but their explanations make things way more complicated and weirder. (laughs) That's that same kind of frustrating, surrealist logic at work here. You can't go into the House of the Undying by the front door. You can't walk a straight path. You have to turn right at every single fork you find along the way, which logically should lead you in a circle. And so it does eventually. Danny is spat right back out this door at the end, having gone right every time. But the circle she follows is not a strictly rational one, because the house appears from the outside as one long hallway. Moreover, as she will say later in the chapter, there do not appear to be towers from the outside. Yet on the inside, there are stairs, which Piat Pri tells her she has to climb. So you can't take appearances seriously. You can't judge a book by its cover. Your own POV cannot be trusted. Unreliable narration is simply a fact of life for all of us. As readers and characters, we walk a path whose shape we do not fully comprehend, even as we are the ones giving that shape meaning. What is that shape? How is the house of the undying actually laid out on the inside if it's not just a hallway? Like a story. Like the word made flesh through which you walk. I talked earlier about Borges in Garden of Forking Paths. In that labyrinth, he proceeds always to the left. George changes it to the right. And I was thinking maybe he did so to represent the reading experience of a Western audience across the page from left to right. If I look back, I am lost, lost in the story. Going to the left would be going back in narrative time to change things, which neither reader nor character is allowed to do. Same with going down. We don't get to see the foundation of story, the author's thoughts. We only get to go upward into the story itself. And that upper level doesn't appear to exist from outside, because the story doesn't exist in the physical book, the physical building, but in our minds, a projected fantasy space. You make the story with your thoughts, as Catelyn creates the faces of the gods from the faces inside her in that sept down in the Stormlands earlier in the book. The House of the Undying has the uncanny feeling of a narrative structure becoming physical structure, thus able to ensnare readers and characters. And in that way, the best analog for the House of the Undying is the book that gave this episode its title, Mark Danielewski's metafictional masterpiece, House of Leaves. House of Leaves, as as one critic put it, is is a book about a labyrinth inside a house, inside a movie, inside a memoir, inside a book. (laughs) The POV keeps changing along with the tone, the form, and even the format of the writing across and eventually all over the page. The only constant is a dreadful sense of imminence, a pit in your stomach certainty that something unimaginably horrifying is just around the corner. What's just around the corner is, of course, the book itself. The endless layers of story, the Russian nesting dolls of stories, they don't detach you from the horror. They are the horror. A House of Leaves is a book. The leaves are the pages, like the leaves of the trees from which the warlock makes shade of the evening. Endless scholarship in House of Leaves in the form of footnotes and little edits call it all into question. Within the universe of the story, the central documentary about the house, the Davidson Report, it doesn't seem to actually exist. It's merely described by unreliable narrators. Art is depicted as a search for truth, destined to fail, not only due to our personal foibles, but because ontological truth is just buried under layers of exegesis. What happens in House of Leaves, and what happens in the House of the Undying, is less important than the slow revelation of a guiding structure that has you, the reader, in its grasp, every bit as much as any of the ostentatiously fictional characters. Piat Pri says that the House of the Undying is not made for mortal men, not made for us. And the same idea is expressed in the opening words of House of Leaves, which read, This is not for you. Of course, House of Leaves can't be an influence on House of the Undying because it actually came out a couple of years later. (laughs) They are best thought of as peers. In both cases, the author is filtering classical mythology, 20th century psychology, and the worship of the novel through a genre framework. By calling attention to their manipulation of genre imagery and expectations, George and Danielewski put fantasy and horror respectively in direct dialogue with Freud and Melville and the Greeks. They provide uniquely mesmerizing experiences for the reader by grounding us in the present moment while also exposing how ruthlessly that moment is being crafted for an audience. Another great uh, metafictional work around this same time was uh, David Lynch's movie Mulholland Drive, which approaches classic Hollywood noir and melodrama like George approaches fantasy and Danielewski approaches horror. It's all just an index of imagery, wrung from its context and exposed as fantasies, implicating character and audience alike in self-deception early on in that movie a character describes a recurring dream of his which takes place in the diner in which he's now sitting in the dream he says he was scared for a reason he can't describe and then he realizes why he's scared and he says there's a man in back of this place he's the one who's doing it And he's describing David Lynch, the director of the movie, the author, in the back of the place. He's the one who's doing it. He's the one who's making you afraid. And the character stops his description as he realizes that the dream scenario is playing out again in front of him. He walks to back of this place and finds a monstrous figure waiting for him. Lynch has said his favorite film is The Wizard of Oz. He returns to it in this scene as he has many times. House of the Undying and House of Leaves draw from that same disorienting situation as the revelation of the titular wizard in Wizard of Oz that he's just a man, not a not a magical power after all. There is just a man in back of this place. George R.R. Martin. He's the one who's doing it. <laughs> these wonderful images, these exciting stories, they are all controlled, and this chapter is his way of letting you know that. The Undying are not sharing divine vision with Danny out of the kindness of their hearts. As in House of Leaves... It's all a trap. Whenever we are lost in a labyrinth of a dream, you have to remember this question that Lynch posed in Twin Peaks Who is the dreamer? Who is controlling this beautiful vision, this beautiful story?
0: Oh, that's so well said, man. And I, I think because you talked so well about the House of the Undying in the context of its place in the ooze of fiction and especially metafiction, I figure I'd spend a few moments at least talking about the House of the Undying within the context of other spots where people in a song of ice and fire have prophetic dreams and visions i mean first up we have the obvious one of melisandre and stannis seeing ambiguous visions in the flames renly's death an alternative in quotation marks the universe where renly destroys stannis under the gates of king's landing burning crowns towers collapsing to the sea and a girl in gray upon a dying horse as well as daggers in the dark as melisandre tells john at the beginning of his arc in a dance with dragons and then we have Theon in his penultimate clash chapter. He has a magical vision similar to Danny's about the Red Wedding while he's sleeping in Ned Stark's bed in Winterfell. Then back in the *Game of Thrones*, we got Danny's tent. It became a magical spot briefly when Miri Mazdoor danced with shadows within it, and Danny experienced visions of Rago's death and probable visions of her future with regard to King's Landing. Jamie in *Storm* or *Feast*, actually both, I think, has visions of fighting back to back with Brienne against White Shadows while wielding a flaming sword while sleeping on the top of a weirwood stump. I think the house of the undying has elements of all of the above working to show the fuzzy past present and future both danny's story and the larger story of a song of ice and fire still i think the house of the Undying it feels emotionally different right i mean from all of those visions and prophecies certainly part of it that is the alternative universes that we see with an adult rego burning a city or even a parallel universe so to speak but I think there's kind of a mood and tonal difference between the house of have been dying and other vision-centric chapters and dreams and sequences in the plot. And I think that difference is Danny taking in her own baggage, a la Luke Skywalker walking into the cave with Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back. And Yoda tells him that he will is only taking whatever he's bringing in to the cave with him. And in that, I feel that this sequence we're going to be discussing in significant depth in the next two weeks feels most similar to me like Ned's Tower of Joy vision in A Game of Thrones, Eddard 10, as well as the fever dream sequence that he has in Eddard 15, his final chapter in A Game of Thrones. In the first vision, in the Tower of Joy, Ned revisited one of his most traumatic memories of his seven versus the three Kingsguard with Lyanna in her bed of blood. And Danny is going to have a similar moment next week with the House of the Undying with the Red Door, which of course is still in Bravos, and that will evoke the Tower of Joy sequence so strongly that I can, ugh, I just can't hardly wait for next week, but I'll wait. I'll pause. I'll let that all filter out next week. For Ned, that vision of the Tower of Joy was brought on by Picel giving him a draft of the Milk of the Poppy. For Danny, though, her visions will be similarly brought about by a mind altering substance, albeit a wine instead of a milk
1: yes exactly the shade of the evening now i talked at length about shade of the evening in our series on the forsaken and so i'm just going to give a capsule of that he- here as regards this chapter if you're interested you can go over to patreon.com slash not a spent a lot of time on one of the the second of our five-part forsaken series talking about shade of the evening the warlock wine is george's catch-all psychedelic drug the imagery is rooted in DMT, specifically the imagery surrounding doors, hence the the dwarf suitor handing the goblet of shade to Danny. DMT tends to uh, shut you down physically, though, holding you in thrall to the imagery for a little while. Shade of the evening appears to eventually do that, judging by the undying, but in a way that more resembles heavy opiate use. We'll discuss that more in a later episode. For the first time user, like Danny, the structure of tripping on shade is more rooted in LSD. And in psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in mushrooms. Danny can walk around, talk, look at things. And George may also be influenced by the legacy of soma, a psychedelic substance used by Vedic Indians. And we aren't sure exactly what soma is, but regardless the way it's described in the Rigveda, a very sacred Sanskrit text, it sounds like Shade of the Evening. We have drunk soma and become immortal. We have attained the light the gods discovered. Now what may foeman's malice do to harm us? What, O oh, immortal mortal man's deception? And you can see the multivalent nature of the drug, the way it kind of seems to reference all these other drugs, just in how it tastes. As Danny describes it, she could feel tendrils spreading through her chest, like fingers of fire coiling around her heart, and on her tongue was a taste like honey and anise and cream. Like mother's milk and Drogo's seed. Like red meat and hot blood and molten gold. It was all the tastes she had ever known, and none of them. It breaks all borders, a rainbow flood of pure sensation. Which is an accurate aesthetic reflection of the psychedelic experience, it does indeed feel like that. The dwarf suitor is wearing purple and blue, his hands are pink, it's a dizzying rush of colors. Like Danny's first sight of Karth back in her second chapter in this book. The difference is that now, she is internalizing the rainbow. She is climbing the holy mountain and passing through the doors of perception. She is no longer merely an observer. She is at least part, taking part. Once she takes that drug, there is no turning back. It's like eating the cake in Wonderland, or eating the pomegranate seeds of the underworld. And as well as paralleling those fables of exploration and deceit, The Shade of the Evening also situates this chapter as a tribute to the psychedelic era. The House of the Undying feels very much like a relic of the trippy Western pop culture of the 1960s and 70s, in which the drugs themselves, combined with countercultural politics and, let's be generous and say, half-understood influences from various (laughs) Asian traditions to produce a distinct approach to art. And that approach persists in television, I mentioned Twin Peaks earlier, it persists in film if you look at something like Asper Noe's Enter the Void, and especially persists in pop music where this certain psychedelic dubby wooziness eventually just became the norm for how pop music sounds. But the era of the psychedelic breakthrough remains distinct for its novelty and its connection to the rise and fall of the aforementioned, aforementioned countercultural movement. George R. R. Martin became a writer in that era, and took part in many of its most cherished works and traditions. This is his tip of the hat to that time, and these reference points carry such resonance because of the importance of psychedelia to the development of high fantasy as a genre. LSD and psilocybin users seized on Dune and Lord of the Rings, not just as diversions, but cultural emblems. The combination of rapturous imagery, episodic plotting... And spiritual yearning in these books spoke directly to the psychedelic audience. These stories took you to other worlds and made you feel the lived-in details of them. And that's what George says is really the heart of fantasy. As he says, Fantasy is silver and scarlet, indigo and azure, obsidian veined with gold and lapis lazuli. Fantasy tastes of habaneros and honey, cinnamon and cloves, rare red meat, and wines as sweet as summer. And not coincidentally, that is also the heart of the psychedelic experience, sensual overload, as well as this understanding of how those stimuli connect to larger structures. So the House of the Undying gradually emerges as a walking tour through the heart of high fantasy itself, manifested as a house of leaves and fueled by the psychedelic mindset that has animated some of the genre's biggest fans. When these substances are at play in your veins... You feel like the lord of creation, to quote George's fever dream. You feel like your third eye is open. You feel like you can see and smell and taste everything. And so goes the shade of the evening. Danny can taste fire and blood. She can taste the mother's milk, the taste of innocence. And also Drogo's seed, the taste of adulthood. Red meat, fresh cream, the molten gold that claimed Viserys' life... It's all here, everything she could ask for, the world in her grasp. And then it's gone. Underneath that psychedelic rainbow of flavor lurks the foul initial taste of the drug. Ink and spoiled meat. That is what the shade and the house are made of. Spoiled meat, the taste of corpses and death. And also ink, the flavor of writing, of story. The taste of story is the taste of death. Danny is tasting her own doom, her narrative fate spoon fed to her as a fictional character.
0: That's brilliant, man. And I think, like, the taste that Danny experiences here, they are serving as a preamble or a prologue to what Danny will experience in the House of the Undying proper. She tastes her previous life experiences in the shade of the evening, and when we get into the House of the Undying, she will once again experience a multitude of previous life experiences in real time. But as she notes, at, at the end of that, of all the tastes, it was all the tastes that she had ever experienced, and none of them at the same time. And that is exactly what the House of the Undying is. It is taking the familiar, the things that Danny knew growing up, her background and her backstory, and also interweaving it with prophecy, with vision, with things yet to come, with futures that'll never
1: be. It's brilliant. I love it. And Pre promises that the Shade of the Evening will deliver the truth to Danny melting the scales from her eyes so that she may behold the wisdom within. But it remains ambiguous what it is the shade of the evening actually does, <laughs> which ties into the ambiguity of, of what the Undying are up to. And this is, you know, to a certain extent how the, 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 the drugs work in real life. I remember, you know, when, uh, when Not Entirely Sober watching Goonies once, and I invented an entire subplot That's not in the movie. And then I went back and wait that's not, that's not in there. I was just like so involved (laughs) by the characters. I invented a relationship between two characters. That's just not canon at all. So, you know, and it's, especially in this case, because it's tied into manipulation and what the other characters are up to. If Danny were to go inside without sipping on the shade, what would she see? Would it be nothing? Are the visions born wholly from the drug? Or would she see the same things, but less compelling? Like me with the Goonies, less detailed. Like looking at an object in the real world sober versus on psychedelic drugs. Would she be able to understand what she sees more if she went in sober? Or less? Does the drug offer her insight, or is it just obscuring clarity for her? We don't and can't know because Danny only gets this one shot, she never goes back sober. And all of this would seem to depend on why Pietri is offering her the drug in the first place. Presumably the warlocks are enthralled to the Undying, right? That Piat Pri is, you know, uh, acting on the orders of the Undying here, Mm -hmm. and the Undying try to trap her at the end. So does the Shade help them trap her by slowing her reactions or by making her vulnerable to imagery? What is the true mechanism here? Well, ambiguities abound before we even get to the prophetic visions. But the mere presence of the Shade of the Evening does lend a distinct tone to this chapter marking it as an intense, sensual experience for the reader. As I said earlier, The House of the Undying contains the best imagery in the series, and the drug is part of what makes that possible for Danny. That experience is transmitted to the reader. Steven Spielberg said he went into his first viewing of 2001 A Space Odyssey sober and emerged high, because the movie itself was the drug, and I think the same applies to this chapter. It really does. And,
0: and just this once, I'm not going to ask you if George wrote this chapter while taking LSD or DMT, because you asked and answered that several times at this point, both in the Forsaken episode and for, for Danny Eight. The answer is no, no, George did not write this chapter high. God, can you imagine that? I think it would probably be a terrible chapter. And this is actually a really good chapter. Um, the, the, the only other character who drinks Shade of the Evening, who doesn't spit it out... Victorian is Aaron Damphair, right? And we see that. And even after doing exhaustively going through the Winds of Winter, the Forsaken, I'm like you, I'm, I'm kind of left uncertain what the drug actually does. a interest, Pyatt Priest says within the House of the Undying, you will see many things that disturb you, visions of loveliness and visions of horror, wonders and terrors, sights and sounds of days gone by and days to come and days that never were. At the very least, Pyatt isn't precisely lying to Danny about what she'll see as she's we're going to find that out specifically in parts two and three of this analysis. But again, is that hallucination brought on by the drug? Does the drug actually cloud her ability to see more and perceive more? It's so, so unclear as you're putting together really well. And that's obviously intentional on George's part. We are meant to be confused. And it's that confusion that George weaves the ambiguities of story construction, character, and the future in the words of one Skywalker, shall we say, this is where the fun begins. <laughs>
1: Perfect Star Wars quote, Chef's kiss, sir. Be- beautifully done. So, t- take us into foreshadowing and groundwork for 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 the House of the Undying, sir. To take it away.
0: Uh, well, let's just call it the whole chapter. I think is probably like the entire chapter is foreshadowing Give or take. and groundwork. I mean, there's there's moments here. I mean, Frank brought up a really great point about the dwarf might represent Tyrion Lannister potentially offering something to Daenerys Targaryen down the road as, as a temptation
1: as figure. That that's a good call, Frank. I think that's that's a good catch. But overall, yeah, for foreshadowing and groundwork for these episodes, folks, we might have to just throw up our hands and say, yeah, that's you know, that's what the chapter is. <laughs> it's not like other chapters where it's like woven into the background. No, it is the text. It's not even subtext. And, and so, unless we uh, something strikes us you know that we're not discussing towards the regular uh chunk of the episodes we're not going to be doing foreshadowing groundwork for the house of the undying uh episodes
0: but that's okay it's we're gonna have a lot of fun like actually like analyzing we're just like i think like instead of like doing foreshadowing groundwork like a lot of our future parts are going to be theory analysis i think is the best way to describe it which is uh, not creating new theories but analyzing these bits of text that we're going to see throughout the house of the undying chapter and coming up with new interpretations potentially, but also evaluating already existing fan interpretations and analyses of what's actually going to flow from the house of the undying.
1: Very well put. It's again, like you know, like being in a library, you draw from research that's been done in the past, then you add your own, right. you know We're trying to add footnotes to some very, very voluminous work as we, we always say we stand on the shoulders of giants, and it's especially <laughs> true with the House of the undying. Oh God yeah. So moving into our theory/ slash discussion portion of the episode. You know, again, there's going to be a lot, a lot of specific topics and prophecies and ideas to talk about in our next couple episodes on this chapter. But for this one, we want to just talk about how we feel about the show's take on the House of the Undying. So what do you think about that, sir? How do you think Game of Thrones handled this particular pivotal moment in the books?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> oh, man, I, I think before we actually give our, our takes on the House of the Undying in season two of the Thrones show, I think we maybe lay out Danny's general season two plot, which is not very good. And then highlight the different things that Danny sees in the show's version of the House of the Undying. As for most listeners, and really for me, uh, before recording this episode, it's been several years since they've seen what was actually in the House of the Undying. I actually watched the House of the Undying sequence and all of Danny's plot, if you can call it that, from season two of The Throne show before recording this episode. And okay. So first let's start with the context of how Danny ended up in the House of the Undying as it's vastly different between books and show. In Season 2, Dany is out and about, Karth trying to get support for her claim, and she gets rejected over and over again. Her final rejection comes from the Spice King, and then she returns from that visit with the Spice King to find that Zaro's mansion is in ruins, with most of her people dead, and her handmaiden, Doria, Doria missing. Zaro calls the Thirteen to Session, where he and the Warlocks, led by Pyat Pri and his clones, Un- unclear, murder the Thirteen and take control of Karth in a coup. Danny stabs Pyot, but it turns out he's just a duplicate Pyot or a clone Pyot, whatever. The real Pyot reveals that Danny's dragons are at the House of the Undying, and she's invited to the party. Afterwards, Danny consults with Jor, who says, I've kind of book passage for Astapor, they should probably leave Karth right now. Danny, of course, refuses this, not wanting to leave her dragons behind in Karth, and then she shows up in the House of the Undying in Season 2, Episode 10. Entering the House of the Undying, Danny sees the following three visions. The destroyed throne room and the red keep with snow coming down and interestingly many fans thought that this was actually ash coming down but as revealed by our friend joanna robinson and her excellent examinations of the scripts from game of thrones the script note for this scene reads danny looks up the roof is missing and snow falls from the sky at the far end of the room the iron throne waits for her dusted with snow her dreams made manifest then the second vision is we have Danny going through a tunnel which turns out to lead north of the wall. She finds a tent and discovers none other than Kyle Drogo with her child Rego in the tent. Drogo asks Danny to stay in the tent with him, thinking that, wondering if he's ensorcelled as well, but Danny tearfully rejects this and repeats Miri Mazdoor's words back to him and walks beyond that. Dan returns to the antechamber, hears her dragon screaming, and finds them chained. Weird ass Pirate Pree then returns to the fold with all of his clones what the fuck even are they telling danny that her dragons are the reason why magic has returned to the world then danny calls dracarus and the dragons light real pyet pre up end scene and house of the undying okay so now that the plot essentials are there Emmett, what did you think about the house of the undying in the throne show season two
1: well, this is a case where I really don't envy the people creating the show, writing this episode, trying to, you know, even set up the, the set and look of it. Because uh, uh, adapting a, a scene of this kind, it's easy to just say, oh, you basically have to, to animate it to do this properly, to to capture the the craziness of the image and the imagination, how everything seems to keep changing. But I brought up Twin Peaks earlier and... You know, David Lynch is, is, you know, very well known regarding for putting wild, crazy, surrealistic, psychedelic imagery of this kind on screen. And some of it's very kind of lush and overwhelming, but a lot of it's actually pretty kind of low production value. I mean, a lot of the stuff in Twin Peaks looks janky on purpose, and he sets it up to look that way. And something like that with Absolutely Dying could work, but it's... The problem is it's so, as we were saying, it's so isolated and so out of context in so many ways. And like, you know, Twin Peaks is weird when you turn it on and weird when you turn it off. And it would be, you know, I think it would be just strange to watch Game of Thrones. It's like, you know, scene about intrigue, dusty battle, insane psychedelic journey (laughs) beyond the moon, you know, back to duels and council scenes. It would, you know, generally speaking, I think the show handled magic best when it was an easily identifiable threat. When you can build a set piece around it, like oh they're they're coming, it's whatever it is—the dragons or the others or the shadow babies, whatever it is. Here it is, it's a threat, and I get why that's easy to to, to dramatize. The House of the Undying is a little harder because it's just like here, look at this. Like here, here's the truth. Here's what power looks like. Here's what magic looks like. It's it's kind of world building, philosophical revelation. It's not really the clima it's it I mean it's the climax of Danny's time in Karth, kind of, but it's it's much harder to build like a you know, a episode nine of a season around, you know, like compared like to the Red Wedding or Ned's execution. So I don't envy what they did had to do. And I do think they they streamlined things to make it about Daenerys's character effectively. And while some stuff in in Karth in season two was ridiculous, like the Spice King stuff, I do think the decision to actually have them forced danny to go to the house of the dying by taking her dragons was a smart move whereas in the book she's just like oh i guess this is the only house i haven't trick-or-treated at guess i'm gonna go here now <laughs> uh you know that little more urgency again the show is you know is good when it can find you know clean sources of urgency but i think you know what what the show lost is just any reason for this to happen at all like why is it here what purpose does it serve? In the books, you can come away with this is George showing us the full range of his talents and power and world building. But when people think of their favorite scenes from Game of Thrones, no one mentions the House of the Undying. So it just becomes kind of listless, not really bad, but just kind of pointless.
0: Yeah, pointless is a great way of putting it. And I think. It's it's funny you you talked about the how this chapter in, in Danny Four being your favorite chapter, and I think that's it's such and that that serves for a lot of people that this is their favorite chapter in all of Song of Ice and Fire. Clash of Kings, Danny Four will rank very highly in in many people's minds, and if you look at the Tower of the Hand rankings of chapters, Danny Four I think is in the top as among the top five chapters in all of Song of Ice and Fire. It might be top ten. Somebody will probably fact check me in in the comments section for the uh, for the live stream. And my feeling about the the House of the Undying is that there were. There was certainly some emotionally poignant elements about it, and, and I do like the fact that the dragons burn Pyat Pri at the end with that epic Danny assuming the Christ like pose while the dragons dracar is Pyat from under her arms. That that's that's pretty fucking cool. Like I, I I gotta admit, like I it like triggers like my my caveman sense of like watching something burn and being like that's fucking cool. Still, the substance wasn't really there as you're alluding to. The two visions read as Danny destroys King's Landing, which we can see now was planned by David Benioff and Dan Weiss from at least the writing of season two and the temptation of a present and future that never was in the form of Drogo and Rego to keep her off of her true path. Now, in the commentary for this scene from Season 2, so back in back in the day, George R. R. Martin actually provided episodic commentary for up through, I think, Season 4, Episode 2. I could be wrong about that. I think that was the last one he did. But he actually did provide commentary for Season 2, Episode 10, where he talks about an explanation for why the substance for the House of the Undying wasn't present in the show, saying... There's a wariness to showing a lot of prophecy in case some characters or story threads have to be trimmed later on it would be sort of stupid to have a whole prophecy of something that never pays off down the road because we have to cut that thread for budgetary reasons having said that george r barton said that he thinks the show will at some point have to deal with events concerning rhaegar lyanna and aris targaryen the mad king So, I think here we're seeing where George had to know that aspects of a story were going to be trimmed down. Aegon, for instance, or cut due to the budget of the show itself again season two we are not the, i know that george when he was doing season two he and david benioff and dan weiss and brian cogman went to time warner and said listen we desperately need more money than you're allotting to us in order to film this blackwater like episode and even then the best episode arguably in all of game of thrones did not have the same majesty that the battle of the blackwater has in a song of ice and fire which makes perfect sense because you can't obviously replicate the immense and amazing thing that george does did that we were going to cover in just just a few months time in fact three months time we get to three weeks time we get to the Tyrion's chapter right where he's dispatching the uh, the stone crows out to 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 fight stannis so i i think this is why the showrunners only went for the one thing they knew that danny's story was driving towards that is the aforementioned destruction of king's landing is the really only truly prophetic event from the house of the undying in the show does it make it lesser yeah yeah, by a lot. But like you, man, I, I think it's an unenviable task to adapt this scene. And it becomes even more unenviable when you realize that there were other constraints going in besides simply storytelling. Namely, budget, writing, the fact that you only have 10 episodes a season. All the things actually go into making a s- small screen television show. That turned out to be fairly successful the long term, but didn't necessarily land something as epic and as grand and as sweeping as The House of the Undying.
1: Budget is certainly a very important practical concern and I totally you know get that point being made about you know you don't want to set something up you're never going to be able to pay off if you don't have the budget for it later although you know they introduced Kinvara in season 6 that sure led places <laughs> but hey you know you know rating detours and plot holes happen to everyone that's that's just that's just part of the game I think it makes eminent sense to kind of pare things down to the, the endgame of Danny's story. It just doesn't end up being a huge factor then in Danny's story. It just it's a glimpse for us that we can then go back to after season eight and go, aha, it was always there. It you know, it doesn't it doesn't serve a larger kind of tragic mythological goal of making Danny more paranoid and uncertain of her power. And that you know, that that does technically happen by the end of the show, but I think Something people were responding to and they didn't like necessarily how arc ended in season eight was was a little bit more of this this kind of flavor in the sense of a real weight to these particular kinds of, of transitory plot beats. So you know it's it's by no means uh, a, a poor adaptation. I think it's it's the similar kind of logic as you know making Gendry and Endrick Storm one character, but that that I think worked well because it allowed you just to kind of tighten things plot wise. This ends up removing the reason for the scene to exist at all so it just ends up being kind of a pleasant diversion instead of like the one point of karth that makes you want to stay here so yeah i i i i I, this is kind of one of the more in-between scenes for me in, in game of thrones i would say on the whole
0: I think in between is a perfect way of putting it. We can understand the directions that they took and why they adapted the scene this way, but it still leaves us just a little bit unsatisfied as lovers of this this chapter from A Song of Ice and Fire and from, uh, from Daenerys Targaryen's story overall in A Clash of Kings. And I think that about wraps us up for this part one of A Clash of Kings Daenerys four. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you to all of our patrons for supporting us. If you have the, the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify,
1: anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-F. Shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin Quentin on Twitter or at Pork And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish
0: on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics of ice and Fire. And
1: we want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybolt, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jamison. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Heron Hall. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Mar Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Stetson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of and de Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderly, Baker of the Fray Pies. Septon, Mariful Head of Hair. Lady Silverwing. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, a protector of the Tri State. Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune, and Lord Clay. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely, thank you all very much. And I, and
0: I apologize, if I didn't actually copy and paste. We do have. Uh, Dylan, Lord DK, former window watcher ah, yes. of the Winterfell oh, of Glass Gardens, who I forgot to copy and paste into this episode, so thank you very much for your support as well. And also, I actually had a small council, new small council member too, and I apologize for recognizing you at the very end of this episode, but it's um, <clears throat> Squire Matt S, future Sir Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdom. So, thank you to our High Lords and Ladies, and thank you again to, to Matt for joining our small council. We'll officially recognize you next week for uh, part two of House of Leeds. So, join us next week for that aforementioned second of three episodes, because it has to be a bowl of three, on A Clash of Kings Daenerys IV, in which Danny bears witness to some
1: increasingly wild and fucked up visions. As much fun as we've had this week, folks, it was just a preamble, just an appetizer until we get into the, the, the glorious panopticon of imagery itself in the House of the Undying. We will have so much to say about all those classic prophecies.
0: We absolutely will. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to our patrons, and we'll see you all somewhat literally next week.